Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Psychology of Music podcast, hosted by the York Music Psychology Group. My name is Dr Mimi O'Neill, and I'm thrilled to welcome you, or to welcome you back. The goal is to share our work with each other in the field, and also make these exciting topics more accessible to non-specialist audiences. So whether you're a researcher, a student, a musician, a lover of music, or just curious about the way that we interact with music, you're in the right place. This week, we have a special series of shorter episodes showcasing five PhD research projects in the field of music psychology. The aim of any PhD is to contribute original knowledge to the field in which we work. Those that embark on that journey explore their chosen subject for a minimum of three years, often eating, sleeping, living and breathing the subject. In many cases, what we will be discussing this week will be work in progress. And we are really lucky to have these first glimpses of the future of music psychology. For our final PhD episode of the week, we have two guests, Hannah Gibbs and Noah Henry, both PhD students in the York Music Psychology Group at the University of York. Hannah's PhD is focused on quantitative and mixed methods research into gamelan playing through the use of physiological measures. She is particularly interested in the effects of synchrony between members of the ensemble and the experience of group flow state contributing to social cohesion. Noah is interested in the social and applied psychology of music in everyday life, as well as music information retrieval. His research considers functional and situational influences that determine music selection in daily life. The aim of his current research project is to generate a method by which it is possible to make context-oriented music recommendations through a knowledge-driven research approach. Noah, welcome and thank you for coming on the Psychology of Music podcast. Can I start by asking you both to give us an overview of your PhD project? What is your focus? How far through are you, etc.? Hannah, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am looking at the phenomenon of group flow uh, within the context of gamelan playing. So there's probably a few things I probably need to explain there. Uh, group flow is essentially flow state, as in individual flow state on a group level. And you might have heard of flow state as this sort of idea of being in the zone with a particular task. Um, it was coined by someone called Chikshem Mahai, and he essentially came up with about nine domains of flow but it just involves an optimal level of challenge and skill given the task involved but also elements of absorption elements of distortion of time and that sort of thing but more recently people have started to wonder about the idea of group flow so how flow is experienced on a group level say with sport or with dance or with music uh, so I started to become more and more interested in how I've experienced group flow in ensemble playing, particularly that of gamelan. Gamelan is a set of instruments in Java. Well, the, the, the gamelan I look at is uh, from Java in Indonesia, and it's essentially a set of percussion instruments, very resonant instruments. Um, there isn't necessarily a leader of the group per se, which means that everyone has to listen to one another, know what each other is doing in order to fit in as part of the wider group. Um, so there's been a bit of research into group flow and a bit of research into gamelan playing with these things in mind, but no one has really looked into both, which is where I came in. Um, as far as how through I am, uh, I'm sort of nearing the end of my third year. Well, I'd say about halfway through my third year. Great. Thanks, Hannah. 
Where did your interest in gamelan come from? So I started playing gamelan in Cardiff, which is where I did my undergrad degree. Um, I was originally a pianist and a double bassist in an orchestra, which I still do. But I found I was getting a little bit stuck into the competitiveness and um, performance anxiety and nerves and self-esteem were coming more and more into play. And actually, I started playing gamelan as sort of relief from my usual musical activities and found that my experience of playing it brought me a lot more enjoyment uh, than the other ensembles that I was involved in, potentially because of this lack of competitiveness and um, just the social aspect of the group. Um, and then I went to Java in Indonesia in God, 2018, uh, I think, and maybe 2019. And there I got to experience it in its sort of actual traditional setting and its, its native cultural setting. Um, and just became a bit fascinated with it. So when I started my music psychology master's, the world sort of collided a bit. So Noah, over to you. Can you give us an overview of your PhD project? Sure. So I, my project has two primary streams. Um, and the first of them is sort of around the functions of music and the role of music in everyday life. And the second stream is more about music curation in everyday listening, specifically more to do with music recommendation systems. and the crux of my project is basically at the intersection, crossroads, variants there of, of those two. Um, so like, really what I'm interested in is as listeners, as human beings, how do we come to select the music that we do in everyday life? And quite a wide ranging consensus in the literature that says that you know, as listeners, we are uh, active rather than passive consumers. So the music that we listen to has strong influences on our perceptions and our, and our cognitive experiences of the, of the situations in which we're listening and where we're listening and who we're listening with and so on. Um, so, you know, for instance, you might choose something that is slow, instrumental or atmospheric, maybe when you're working, or you might choose something that's faster and more energetic when you're exercising and so on. Um, so when we choose music to listen to, uh, we do so with some of those sort of situationally or contextually determined goals that are in mind. So that's kind of that first stream that I was talking about. And the second stream is to do with the fact that running parallel, music has never been quite as accessible or as widely as accessible as before. Um, for instance, you know, cloud-based streaming services um, hold tens of millions of songs in huge online repositories. The navigation of those repositories is pretty challenging for an individual. So you need search and retrieval mechanisms to, to basically find content, right? Um, especially when it comes to discovering new music. So recommendation systems, the second sort of strand, if you like, are used to determine which items from those large scale repositories are worth recommending or not to other people. Um, and then that will be based on things like past interactions or similarity to other users and, and so on. Um, and basically those systems have got pretty good at modeling our long-term taste. So, you know, what kind of music you like uh, uh, in terms of like music preferences and so on. Um, but they're a bit slower in developing to meet those short-term cross-sectional needs that are situationally determined um, and we can now have due to you know, streaming services and such. Um, and which underpins a large amount of that music selection. So my research is about trying to better understand how those 
how functionality and music selection is situationally determined um, and looking at how that relates um, and can be incorporated into knowledge-driven or psychology-informed recommendation systems. Um, knowledge-driven or psychology-informed systems being ones that uh, that use information or understanding from psychological or social science research, um, which mitigates concerns around data privacy and so on, as would come with um, the kinds of recommendation systems that would seek to fulfill short-term needs, such as by accessing mobile phone data and such. Um, so that's kind of the the the, the intersection is, is, is between music use and music accessibility and curation recommendation playlists. Thanks, Noah, and thanks both. Um, both of these projects employ uh, atypical or slightly novel methods of data collection. Um, I'm going to start with Noah. Could you explain really what music information retrieval is and how it might apply to sort of everyday users' experience of music streaming? Um, I can, yeah, I'll try and be concise because it's a pretty big field. Um, so, MIR or music information retrieval is um, well, it sounds a little facetious to say, but basically it's about extracting information from music. That It's about retrieving information from music. And it incorporates a lot of different um, methods. It's very interdisciplinary as a field, but typically it uses computational methods and expertise to generate tangible outputs. And these might involve projects that relate to computer science, machine learning, signal processing, but also music psychology, music education, and um, acoustics, psychoacoustics as well, as well as creative practice, things like AI song generation and so on. So there's a lot of crossover in MIR and it's, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge area in its own right. But I suppose a bit more specific to your question is that common aims uh, of music information retrieval is about uh, attributing interpretable information to music directly. So that might include some form of classification or source separation, for instance, to identify genres or instrumentation that's in music um, automatically, and then use those in certain applications to, to, to categorize and otherwise share music with listeners. So for instance, uh, to, to, to classify them by genre and such. Um, so that kind of process of audio signal processing is, is is a big part of it and they might attribute things as well like features so that could be things like how stimulating is a piece of music how happy how sad is it and so on um, and then build on those on that data through things like machine or statistical learning to then uncover intricacies or behavioral models to then predict what kind of music is going to be uh suitable for other people. So that's where they get, it would then get reapplied in recommendation systems. So if people are say listening to this on Spotify, then Spotify will use this recommendation systems. They'll use MIR to identify and segment audio, tag it with certain characteristics, and then use that to inform or at least partially inform subsequent recommendations that they receive. So it's a huge field, but that's kind of it in relation to my area of substantive interest, but there's a lot more to it than that. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Noah. And now for something completely different. Uh, Hannah, you're using physiological measures. What is physiology? How do you measure it? And, and why have you chosen this approach? Yeah, good question. So physiology is essentially relates to any aspect of our bodily function. Uh, so I particularly am looking at heart rate. Uh, so we all know what heart rate is, but I'm also looking at skin conductance, which is essentially a measure of how sweaty you are. Um, 
the reason I've chosen this approach is because I'm interested in the subconscious experience. Flow tends to be something that a lot of us aren't necessarily aware of when we're in it. And to date, a lot of the research surrounding flow and particularly group flow is largely qualitative or self-report. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But I wanted to uh, sort of supplement that with a, a measure of the subconscious experience that you might not be so aware of. Uh, so in group settings in particular, we found, well, there have been studies that have found that physiological measures can synchronize or be coupled when people are playing music together or participating in some sort of joint action. And similarly, with flow state, it's seen to relate to this sort of moderate level of physiological response where you're not too challenged or you're not too bored. Uh, so that's reflected in your physiology. But to date, no study has seemed to employ these findings together. So no one's really looked at shared physiology related to group flow. And this is what I wanted to do with my project by looking at it within Gamelan. And what I found is, is, yeah, there does seem to be some sort of relationship there. I won't reveal too much. I'll reveal it in the presentation on uh, Friday, which you should definitely stick around for. Um, but essentially, not only is a physiological response related to the music itself um, or momentary changes in effort, but also the degree of sort of collectiveness uh, there is in a group and perhaps whether you're improvising or playing a piece that's prescribed, so written down, that also has some impact on how much physiology synchronizes or is sort of experienced on a group level. Yeah, absolutely. And so just from a user perspective, if I were taking part in one of your studies and you were you were measuring my physiology, what would my experience be? What would I what would I notice? Yeah, so I uh, I measure ECG from the four senses to the chest, electrocardiogram. Uh, so that's a common measure of how we, we measure heart rate. But uh, skin conductance is measured usually through your sweat glands in the hands, your medial phalanges, the sort of middle bits on your fingers. Uh, but I actually chose to measure skin conductance via the foot uh, because you have just as many sweat glands in your foot and something somewhat of an issue with use of physiological measures in a lot of music research and the reason perhaps why it isn't so common is because a lot of the technology we have although it's getting better and it is developing a lot of the the measures that exist tend to be quite uh, subject to interference through movement and noise and this can create artifacts in the signal that make it really hard to actually see what's going on and separate the physiological response from the movement response. Uh, so the reason why I'm using the foot uh, skin conductance is because when people play gamelan, traditionally you play not wearing shoes anyway, that's sort of a thing that's respect to the instruments. And you also play sat down on the floor. So I know with some degree of certainty, there's going to be very little movement happening uh, with that particular measure. So if you could have one macro goal for your work, what would it be? Who do you hope benefits from your work and, and where does it go next? Hannah, let's go, let's go to you first. Yeah, I mean, I think the study of group flow is really divided. I think people are still trying to figure out exactly what it entails. Is it just an extension of an individual flow state or is it something entirely different when it's experienced on a group level? So this is something that I 
really do hope to contribute to um, by sort of supplementing some of the qualitative investigation that's happened so far with quantitative methods. I think a mixed method approach is really valuable. And I think we can't always work out everything from uh, self-reports and interviews and neither can we work out everything from just uh, reducing people to numbers. I think they can definitely supplement each other. And the other thing I think is is talking to the players that are involved in my study and are interested in my study. I think it's important performers and people who are engaged in ensembles to also be aware of what's going on because I think it's something people don't really give themselves credit for is how fine-tuned your bodies and your minds are to actually be able to play with one another and I think this is something my study helps with really. Thanks Hannah and and Noah same question to you. The hope I guess of my project as a whole is to get the ball rolling on actually incorporating psychology or knowledge-driven approaches to generating music recommendation systems. Um, There's quite a lot of criticism um, of recommendation systems that are currently data dependent. And there's this idea that by introducing greater supervision to, for instance, to machine learning models, we can get just as much out of out of these things with less data or more ethically sourced data. Um, so yeah, I, I think the best, the best way I can describe it is that I, I hope that my project is a pebble in the pile of getting to that output of where we can have uh if, if where we can have recommendation systems that are should we say more driven by knowledge and by ethical transparent research rather than just by training large-scale models that inherit certain biases and have limitations that are associated with them so it's small scale my project so it's not by any means you know uh, yeah, the deal end all, but I just want to try and get the ball rolling and actually trying to apply some of these things and trying to, uh, yeah, incorporate some of these in, some of this interdisciplinarity between, I guess, psychological research and computer science as well. So that's so that's really the macro goal for me is to is to is to be a pebble in that pile. But so it's really easy to get sucked up when you're doing a PhD into thinking you have to sort of change the world. So that's absolutely a, a credible goal. But I think. I think it's probably not fair to describe your research as small scale. Um, I mean, could you give us some scope of the amount of data that you have dealt with over the last few years? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I'm currently up to my third study in my project. The first two, the, the first one was about generating a psychometric construct of music functionality from a utilitarian perspective. So that is to say, this is a construct that allows us to measure or assess the reasons that people have for listening to music in everyday life um, and, and their, their reasons for applying and listening to music. Um, and then the, the second study applied that in as a sort of large cross-sectional study where basically we asked people uh, where they were when they were listening to music, what they were doing, uh, why they were listening through that constructs that one about these uses in music listening and then ask them to report the music that they selected and then we triangulated those things um so there was a lot of data in there a lot of rich a lot of rich data um yeah and then there was quite a heavy analytic approach to going through trudging through all that but 
so, so there's quite a lot of data in there, but the complexity, scope, and scale of music listening is just so diverse that that I think it's, it's, it's around a thousand good quality observation, which I'm very pleased with, I must say. Um, but um, but yeah, it's um, it, 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 it's, it's enough to explore these methods and these and these approaches. Um, but just the scale of the of the thing that we're up against here, it, 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 you need multiple studies like that in different locations and taking into account different cultural aspects as well so so yeah there's a lot of data there but um i think we need more still so as well as chatting to me for the podcast you are going to be giving a five minute flash talk in the music cognition matters speaker series on friday which is tomorrow can you give us a brief overview of what we can expect from your presentation noah do you want to start there my aim in five minutes is to essentially outline uh, the steps that I've taken so far. So just to briefly outline the nature of the problem as I've tried to, to mention here, and then, um, yeah, articulating the steps that I've taken as part of my projects to try and address some of these questions and some of the approaches that I've taken, uh, some of the forks in the road as well. Um, so, so yeah, essentially it's discussing some of the things I already have here, but supplementing them with some of the empirical findings and the empirical data that we've collected as part of that um, in five minutes, because I'm ambitious. Shouldn't be a problem. Thank you. And Hannah, same question to you. Yeah, I'll be sort of providing a summary of uh, an article that I've recently submitted for publication, fingers crossed, on the study that I conducted last year, which was the first study of my PhD, um, and then talk about what my next steps are, as well as kind of further variables I'm interested in looking at, as though the ones that I've already looked at aren't enough. <laughs> yes, yes, you can always pick out a Hannah study from the pile because it's got a lot of variables. But they both sound great. Thank you. Um, and as part of this speaker series, we're also inviting presenters to issue a sort of a call to action or just a prompt for further thought and discussion. Make sure you join us for all of the PhD presentations tomorrow. So this week, we are taking the opportunity to reflect a little on your experience as a PhD student so far. Is it what you expected, Hannah? Yes and no, I think. I think the main thing to point out is the fact that I and Noah actually both started our PhDs during the time of COVID uh, in September, October of 2020, where it was very uncertain how long things were to go on for. And actually, neither of us were really able to get started. Well, I wasn't able to really get started with collecting any data and actually having face-to-face -face research for a long time. That had some advantages, though, because it made me sort of sit and think about what it was that I was really interested in focusing on. And actually, my PhD project evolved a lot. It changed a lot from what it was originally supposed to be. And I ended up incorporating physiological measures, which wasn't actually in my original plan. And I think that's one of the most surprising things is I have taught myself, essentially, how to understand physiology and how to uh, measure it but also how to analyze it. I've taught myself coding from the ground up. I had no knowledge of it beforehand um, and I didn't really think I could get there. As well as that, I think understanding post COVID how much of a community there is in the field of music psychology, obviously we are 
small we're a little family and um everyone has an interest in what you're doing regardless of how different it is from someone else's topic so I found going to conferences has been a lovely thing I've been fortunate enough to be able to go to conferences in Vienna and Oslo and I'll be actually going to a conference in Tokyo in August so I think it's the traveling aspects as well and actually putting myself out there as an international researcher when I still feel to some degree like I don't necessarily know what I'm doing um, just feels really special. Yeah great and I like I have worked with both of you since your master's year and to see what you've achieved over the last however long it is, is, is really inspiring. You should be really proud of yourselves. I'm really proud of you both. Um, and so to Noah now, what have been the highlights and the challenges for you? Yeah, so I think for me, highlights are really echoing what Hannah just said, which is the ways in which the project has kind of evolved and the way that as I thought that time's gone on and I've, um, I think the way that I've personally, you know, improved and, and grown for lack of a better word. Um, it's it's some some of some of the skills that I've acquired along the way. I'm quite I'm quite pleased with. So similar to Hannah, um, you know, learning things about coding, which which I didn't really know much about before I started my PhD, and then by by necessity of the topic and the things that I'm looking at and the things that I'm trying to do, I've learned a lot of those things. I'm doing things now that I don't think I would have been able to do a few years ago. So I think that's been a real uh, something that I'm really pleased with for me personally is that. Is, is, is the fact that the application skills have just have just grown and grown. I think that's that's quite a valuable set of skills to have. So I'm quite pleased with that. Challenge-wise, for me personally, I think that being um, you know being a self-funded PhD student isn't without its problems. You know, every PhD has challenges and everything, but you know when you're self-funded, resources are very limited. There are obviously drawbacks that can limit your ability to do certain things. Um, but I think that there is an upside to that, which is that, you know, I'm I'm an optimistic realist. It's kind of how I describe myself. Um, so when it can be challenging, you know, when, when you don't have everything that you might have in an ideal world, um, you just learn to make the best out of you can with what you do have um, and being resourceful and being a bit creative with things. So that's posed a challenge, but also it teaches you some some good skills. So um, so, yeah, every cloud. Absolutely. Um, and so based on that, Noah, what advice would you give to someone thinking of doing a, an MA or a PhD in music psychology? Or is there something that you wish you knew before you had started? Mm. Um, yeah, so advice for me would be to, especially when it comes to doing things like a PhD, it, it feels like a huge part of your life. And it is it is obviously a big thing. You know, it's a lot of work. Um, but I think maintaining perspective on your PhD is, is quite important. And um, I know that it can be easy and I have as well, you know, we get completely sucked into doing a PhD. Um, and I think that maintaining a healthy balance between PhD as work and other things outside of your PhD are really important. I think that engaging with other hobbies and socializing with other people, it's important to, to, to balance that perspective. And so that your PhD is a big part of your life, but it's not your whole life. You know, I think that it, you don't want to burn out and that can be something that can be quite easy to do so I think that maintaining that balance is really important something I wish I'd known before I started was that it's okay to ask for help I think that I've you know I'm, I'm lucky that I've got some good supervisors but but no one individual knows everything you know we're not islands of, of knowledge and 
being able to just drop other people in the email, people with expertise in certain areas and ask for their help, their advice, their thoughts. I've never had a bad experience doing that, touch wood. Um, you know, everyone's really supportive. I think part of it comes from the fact that, as Hannah mentioned, we're a small field. So I think that everyone realizes it's in their best interest that we help each other. And if people can help you, they generally will. So I think that being able to ask know it's okay to ask other people for help is something that'd be really valuable for other people it's okay to ask what's what happen if someone says no but that rarely happens so just ask thanks Noah and Hannah any anything you wish you had known or anything that you would tell someone thinking about doing this yeah I think I've got two kind of main points I think with regards to a PhD step outside your comfort zone uh, I think there's there can be a misconception that if you're doing a PhD, you're already somewhat of an expert in the area that you're researching in. But there's nothing wrong with actually feeling like, oh, I need to learn something else in order to actually fill that gap, so to speak. Because uh, this is definitely both both Noah and Andai. This is something we had to do is learn a lot more than I think we were we had foreseen or were prepared to. Um, and that has actually been great because I've now come away with so many more skills than I did before but then generally to anyone thinking of pursuing study is it's something I've only really started to realize I think in the past year or so is that take ownership over the background that you have and the skills that you can bring because it's an interdisciplinary field no two people are going to have the same experiences come into it. I've met people with engineering backgrounds, psychology backgrounds, music backgrounds, um, so on, so forth. Everyone has a different insight that they can bring. And I think me, whereas my undergraduate was in music and I felt like psychology was something I entered in a little bit later on, that actually gave me an advantage because I know what it's like to be an ensemble musician. I've got that insight. Um and equally, if you've got an insight from a psychology point of view, you might know more about the psychology of it than uh, someone entering from music does. So I think you take your personal experience and you run with that. I think it's easy to enter it and feel like you don't know enough of someone else. Um, but actually, that's the beauty of this field. My final question is, is there an article or similar that you have read recently that you would recommend to others? Hannah, you go first. I'm going to go rogue and I'm going to suggest a whole book. Wow. Um, <laughs> because, you know, it, it's a book that is very good at being approachable and understandable if you have any experience or no experience. Uh, it's the Together in Music book uh, and it's by uh, editors Renee Timmers, who's based in Sheffield. Freya Bales, who based in Leeds, and Helena Daffern, who I know you interviewed earlier on in the series. Um, they're the three main editors, but each chapter is an entirely different perspective on what we care about as psychologists when it comes to group music making. Uh, and beyond that as well, you know, it covers lots of different disciplines and, you know, there's something in there for everyone. I'll also suggest an article because it's one that has just been published uh, that I find fascinating by uh, Simon Hoofding et al. It came out in May of this year and it's called Into the Hive Mind. It's a study on uh, cardiac, so heart rate synchrony um, of performers and shared absorption uh, in string quartets. So it's quite closely related to my project. They use very different methods and they're their focuses of shared absorption, which I have to say is 
slightly different from flow state, but I see them as sort of cousins, uh, so to speak. So that's a really interesting read. Thanks, Hannah. And Noah, anything anything we should put on our list? Yeah, so the one that I wanted to recommend is very closely related to, I guess, my area of substantive in- interest. And it's, I'm not sure if it's a book or a long article or something like that. The format seems a little bit unusual, but it's, it's called Psychology Informed Recommender Systems. And it's by Elizabeth Lex and colleagues. And it's just a really, really great overview of limitations regarding uh, data-driven uh, recommendation systems and the role and methods by which psychology can be used and integrated into those. So I suppose from the psychologist's perspective, this isn't just music recommendation systems, by the way, but recommendation systems of other varieties as well. Um, but I thought it's just a really great overview and and look at some of the problems and methods that people are working on to to yeah further that area. But I suppose that's quite selfish to my area of interest. But but yeah, that's a good one. Great. Thank you both so much. And and thank you just for your time today and for sharing your projects with me. Um, We're all really looking forward to your Flash Talks tomorrow. You can watch all of the PhD Flash Talks in the Music Cognition Matters series online at one o'clock this Friday, 26th of May. The link is in the show notes and can also be found at mus-cog-matters.glitch.me. Thanks for listening and I hope to welcome you back for our next episode.